Okay, <clears throat> so this morning we are beginning our summer, we kind of started last week, but beginning officially our summer tour through the Psalms, and we're going to be in Psalm 101 today. If you would open your Bible there with me, if you've got your phone, turn to Psalm 101. I'm going to read it in a minute. I'm going to be reading out the NIV, so maybe initially or the whole follow along. Sorry, because I, I have a cough coming. If you want to follow along um, with what I'm reading, the NIV is where you want to be for, for that portion. Um, but I need to give you a little bit of context um, for this psalm. This psalm occurs in book four, and I've got diagrams back there. I'm a person that I want to know what's going on in a whole book of the Bible. And I talked about this last year, and we had them available last week. But there's four books. The psalms are made up of four books, and book four starts in Psalm 90 and goes to 106. And this Psalm 101 occurs in book four, and book four has a lot of the royal psalms. If you were here last week, we talked about the different kinds of psalms, and one of them is a royal psalm, which exalts God as the sovereign king of the universe, right? Uh, the thing I didn't tell you last week, because it wasn't that necessary, um, is that some, a few of the royal psalms are not about God's reign, but are actually about the reign of the king in Israel and over Jerusalem. And we're going to encounter one of those today. That's what Psalm 101, it's a royal psalm written about David by David. So it's really about himself and his his own rule. So would you stand with me? I would like to read Psalm 101. <clears throat> and if you would stand and follow along, I would appreciate it. So Psalm 101, a psalm a David of David, a psalm. I will sing of your love and justice. To you, Lord, I will sing praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. I hate what faithless people do, and I will have no part in it. The perverse of heart shall be far from me, and I will have nothing to do with what is evil. Whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. And whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. The one whose walk is blameless will minister to me. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. Every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. So you may be seated. <clears throat> yeah, again, this psalm is from the, uh, from the hand of David, and it's one of his journal entries. We're going to see in a minute, you'll see how much of it is that, it's, that it is a journal entry. And what's interesting is in this fourth book, and by the way, if you want one of these, you can grab it on the way out at the info book, booth, but in this fourth book, there's only two Psalms of David, this one and Psalm 103, which found out last week in staff is Lisa Hubner's favorite Psalm 103. Um, but what we're reading today, it's a journal entry, and I really need to give you context of this journal entry from David, because without it, it can be misunderstood. Um, some people who have encountered this psalm found it to be a little self-righteous and judgmental, and I think it's because they're reading it without understanding the context. That David is writing this as king of Israel, and this is about his position as king and ruler of a nation. So he, and we're going to see this as we go through it, that he's writing in a way that he's, he's thinking about the kind of leader and ruler that he wants to be. Um, so that's important as we go through this. So let's dive in. Um, David, as king of Israel, he wants to be a good and just ruler. And so we're going to see in this psalm that he's committed himself to purity in three areas of his life, three areas, purity in three areas in this psalm. And the areas are um, the realm of his heart, the realm of his home, and the realm of his homeland. <clears throat> realm of his heart, realm of his home, realm of his homeland. 
And I want to look into each of those. So first, I want to start with this realm of David's heart. He begins the psalm by speaking of his wholehearted devotion to God and his desire to live a life of total personal integrity in relation to God. So I really like that. So this first one really is, it's about his heart, and it's about his personal commitment and his character. So that's what he's talking about at the very beginning, his personal commitment and his character. And his commitment is the very first thing. It's to God. It's the first thing in his life, that that's the relationship. That's where his life centered. That's why he starts in verse 1 with praise to God. I will sing of your love and justice. To you, Lord, I will sing praise. So I love how he begins this psalm specifically with praise to God. Um, just like we, this summer, be- beginning our services, first thing with a song of praise to the Lord. That's what David does. And he praises God for two specific qualities, for his love and for his justice. Two qualities that are frequently found together in the Old Testament when it talks about God. And that word for love I mean, if you've been around long enough, you know my favorite Hebrew word in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word chesed, and that's this kind of love. And it is his faithful, his loyal, his steadfast, unconditional, ever-going covenant love for us. That's the kind of love it's talking about. And tell me, who does not long in their hearts to have a God that is 100% loving and also 100% just? Do you not want to follow a God like that? I know I do. So I love that David begins with God, as he almost always does in his psalms. And I think he starts there because he knows in the words of Psalm 127.1, as a ruler of a nation, that unless the Lord build the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Parents, take heart for that. But he knew that he had to have God in the right place if he was going to rule well. And then he moves from God's, from God, his commitment to God in the next part of in, verse, in the beginning of verse 2, to his own character, to the integrity of his heart. So look at verse 2. I'll be careful to lead a blameless life. So his deepest determination is to live in a way that's upright and pleasing to the Lord. That's the desire of his heart. Um, he wants to reflect God's nature as he rules in this kingdom. And then he adds six words right after that, which is a simple cry a request that shows his heart. And here we're getting a glimpse of him writing in his journal, okay? Getting a glimpse because then he says this, when will you come to me? So he's having this journal conversation with God. This is the kind of man I want to be. I want to praise you. I want to live a life of integrity. But he knew that to do that on his own, uh, I mean, you've tried that, right? That it's, it's impossible. We still haven't, we struggle with indwelling sin. And so he's like, when will you come to me? I need your presence. If I'm going to get this done, I'm utterly dependent upon you. So I love this just little note that he adds, again, that's part of his own journal and his diary with God that he's having this conversation. So he starts with his own heart. And now the second half of verse 2 through verse 7, he's going to move to the realm of his home, the realm of his home. And here he's going to talk about his court. If you'll look closely at the text, you will see the words, my house, occurring twice. You'll see them in the second half of verse 2, and you'll see those words, my house, in verse 7. And that's forming a bracket around this section. So this section is he's talking about his house or his court. And let me tell you why I say that um, before I jump into it, Um, this concept of his house. Because for kings at that time, and even in Europe up till very recently, the king's house and his court were one and the same. And his advisors and his closest friends 
and his family lived with him within the walls of the palace, actually lived in his court. So his house and his, his court, his palace are all the same. So when he's talking about his house, he's actually talking about the people that are surrounding him and that help him in leading his government. <clears throat> so first, let's see what David says about himself, because he's the head of the house. And as the saying goes, as the leader goes, the organization goes, and he knows that. So when talking about his house, here's the first thing that he says, the most important thing he says about my house at the beginning and the end of verse 2. I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. That's the second time he's used the word blameless. And I really love in this in this psalm how he does this because in the first part of verse 2 he committed to lead a blameless life and now he's committing to have a blameless heart he's going even deeper down into the core of who he is and i think it's because he knew the truth of proverbs 4:23 which says above all else above all else guard your heart because it is the wellspring of life everything you do flows out of here and so he's like i want a blameless heart lord that's what i want because he knew that what came out of his heart through his life into the government, I mean, what came out of his heart would affect the government, and it would affect everything, and as a leader, that it would affect the people around him and even how they led. And this was so important. I mean, you guys know this. We don't see it quite as much, but you still see stories that the seats of power are frequently full of corruption, excess immorality, right? It was very much that day in his day, and the people living within those palace walls, unseen by most people, Outside the common people had no clue all the junk that was going on. It was hidden behind the walls, but David doesn't want that. He wants a, a house of integrity. So I respect that. And I find a really important leadership lesson here. Because we've often heard, I started hearing this in the 90s for the first time. We've often heard that it doesn't matter what a leader does with his life, his private life, as long as he leads well, right? It doesn't matter what he's doing with his private life, as long as he leads well. And frankly speaking, I just want to say, how naive is that, right? Is that not one of the most naive things you've heard? Integrity is a seamless garment. I love, I've heard that. I don't remember who I heard that from. But I want you to know that whatever is in your heart and your private life, it will spill over into your public life. Is that not true? It will spill over. Um, a person that cannot be trusted privately cannot be trusted publicly. And if I can't keep my commitments to my own wife, then how am I going to keep commitments to an organization or a nation or a government, right? It's, it's holistic. And that's why Jesus said in Luke 16.10 that he was faithful in little things, will be faithful in big things. And if you can't be faithful in little things, you will not be faithful in big things. Now, the rest of this section, he's going to go into more detail about what this commitment looks like in his life to conduct his affairs with a blameless heart. So verse 3, I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. That word vile refers to anything that is worthless and wicked that leads to destruction, destructive behavior. And what I love here is he commits not only to guard his heart, but he's going to guard the gateway to his heart. He's going to guard his eyes. And I wonder how many of us need to hear that today, the need to guard even our eyes and what we look at. And then the second half of verse 3, he's going to shift towards what, he's required, what he requires of those closest to him in his house, in his court. He says, I hate what faithless people do. I'll have no part in it. The word faithless people in Hebrew, it speaks literally people who have swerved away from the right course and have turned away from God and are moving away from Him. 
and he says, I'll have no part in it. In Hebrew, it says, I, it will not cling to me. It will not cling to me. I love the way he writes that. And what about that word hate? That's a pretty strong word, right? But I want to make sure we see that he's writing this as a ruler, and what he says is not that I hate people, but he says, I hate the things that they do. Um, and there's actually an important principle in this. I know you've heard it before that we hate the sin, but we love the sinner, right? And I, I will say that can be used in a self-righteous way, and that's not the intent of it. But that saying has fallen on hard times in modern culture, because in modern culture now, if people expect that you not only accept what they do, no matter what it is, whatever way they want to live their life, but they expect approval, and if they don't get approval, you're in the wrong for that. So this has fallen on hard times, this ability to hate sin and love sinners. I could say a lot about this, but I'm not going to this morning. But I do want to say one thing. <clears throat> if you love people, you hate the things that destroy them. Is that not true? Parents know this. When you see a behavior or a habit in a child that is destructive to them, you strongly dislike that thing. Is that not true? While passionately loving to them. And you, you will come against that thing. I mean, you will, you'll use discipline, correction, whatever way you can to try to, to weed that thing out of them so that they'll live a full and flourishing life. So it, it, it is... It is natural that if I love somebody, that I will hate things that destroy them, okay? And that's what David is saying here. <clears throat> so verse 4, he goes on, The perverse of heart shall be far from me. I'll have nothing to do with what is evil. So it's not just the faithless that concerns him, but he even goes down into heart motivations. He's, he's concerned about people's heart condition. That Hebrew word behind the word perverse refers to something that's crooked, twisted, or distorted. And it refers to a heart and mind that, that hates God, has turned from Him, and is therefore not walking in His paths, which are straight, but is walking a crooked way. And of those people, He says, they're going to be far from me. I don't want anything, nothing to do with what is wrong and evil. And He not only distances Himself from evil, but as King, He's going to do everything in His power to curtail it. So look at verse 5. Whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. So he mentions two kind of people that he will deal with in his court, in his house. Those who slander others <clears throat> and those who are proud. Slanders being people who love to gossip, who love to talk about people behind their back, to cut them down, to cut down their rep reputation, which ends up destroying people. And we've all done it. And we've all had it happen to us, right? And he's like, I want none of that in my court. And the other thing he doesn't want is pride. And he says it in two ways, interestingly. Those who have haughty eyes and those with a proud heart. For a long time, I never totally understood the haughty eyes. It's a lot in Proverbs. It's a lot in the book of Psalms. And learned just this week that that was a way in their culture of talking about a person who in their demeanor and the way they carried themselves had a sense of pride about them. So he's like, I don't want a person that's proud in their heart. I don't want a person that even looks like it. I don't want that in my court. And it's because he knew the truth of 1 Peter 5, 5, that God opposes the proud and he exalts the humble. And he wrote himself in Psalm 18, 27, you save the humble, but bring low, low those whose eyes are haughty. Then verse 6, he's going to shift his perspective. He's going to shift to the positive and talk about the kind of people who will live with him and serve with him in his court. He says, my eyes will be on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me, and the one whose walk is blameless will minister to me. There's a word there that is occurring the third time in this psalm. What is it? Blameless, right. 
blameless. Um, he's saying, those that are blameless, they're the ones that are going to minister to me. That purity of heart and lifestyle is so important to him. He wants that in the people around him. And then who's going to live with him? He says the faithful. And these are people who are the opposite of the faithless who we talked about in verse 3. These are people who passionately desire God, who delight themselves in him and pursue him in his ways. That's the kind of people that he wants around him that are going to live with him. And then verse 7, David concludes this section with my house language again. I love this because it's very personal to him. It's almost like um, sometimes when I'm writing, taking notes and writing um, in my journal, which I don't do nearly enough, if there's something really significant, I'll actually go back over it and write over it two or three times to make it a little bit darker, and it's almost like that's what he's saying here. So no one practices, verse 7, no one practices who practices deceit will dwell in my house, and no one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. This one's so important, he actually says the same thing twice, that basically those who play loose with the truth, <clears throat> I'm not even going to give them the time of day. I'm not even going to give them the time of day. Now, before we get to the final section, this whole section made me think of some other scripture, and I'd like you to turn, I've got a book of Psalms right here, I'd like you to turn to the book of Proverbs, if you would, in your Bible or on your phone. Next book of the Bible, I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 6, and I want to lay Proverbs 6 next to what we just read, and I want you to see there's this amazing correlation I see going on here, um, and Proverbs 6 is actually written by David's son, um, King Solomon. So if you turn to Proverbs 6, and as we read 16 to 19, read it with Psalm 101 in your mind and heart. Verse 16, it says, there are six things the Lord hates, no seven things he detests, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who sows discord in a family. Do you see the correlation between the two? Do you know why David is so serious about those things? It's because he knows that God is serious about them. That's why they're so important to him. And they're so serious to him, these things that he says in Psalm 101, he would not look at those things, he wanted nothing to do with them, he would silence them, he would not tolerate them, he would not let people who did them live with him, not even stand in his presence. Those are all really strong words. What I learn is, is that for David, this guy, he is serious about the people that he will be allowed to be around him and influence him and his kingdom. This is serious business for him. So serious that I can't help but to think that Psalm 1 was not on his heart as he prayed this prayer. Um, turn to Psalm chapter 1 because I see similar things even in here. I think this psalm, we don't know who wrote it, but I'm sure it shaped his heart. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. And as we read these, this first verse, pay attention to the, um, to the progression here from walk to sit to stand. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Man, may we have more people like David in seat of powers, in the, seat, not, in the seats of power, right? Amen to that. May we have more people like him that are in government, that are giving rule. 
because he cares not only about his heart, but he cares about his home, his court. And then third, the final section of the psalm deals with the realm of his homeland. And here he's talking about specifically his capital, Jerusalem, and his country. And it's in verse 8. Every morning I will put the silence. That's the second time he's used those words, by the way. Every morning I will put the silence, all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. And I want you to know, this is not personal vindictiveness, okay? This is the ruler of a nation who is concerned with goodness and justice in his realm. Um, he was not only committed to purging evil and injustice from his own heart and from his court, but from the nation as a whole. And you will use his power to bring goodness as much as possible to that city and to his country and to protect it from evil, and to protect justice in the land. In Romans 13.1, Paul wrote that the authorities that exist have been established by God. And 1 Peter 2.14 adds that rulers are sent by him to do two things. One, to punish those who do wrong, and two, to commend those who do right. And that's exactly what's in this psalm. That's David's daily commitment in verse 8, to create a good and just realm. That's why he says, every morning, every morning, this is what's on my heart. I mean, isn't that not that... That desire for justice and goodness, is that not like job one of somebody in government leadership? Is that not job one? To establish justice, to ensure the domestic tranquility, and to promote the general welfare, is that not what a good ruler is to do? And that's what he did. So let me sum up, sum up this psalm. Um, in Psalm 1, we have the description of the ideal king, the ideal ruler, <clears throat> the kind of national leader that I think we all long for. First, we see David's commitment to God and to his own personal integrity. As I read this psalm, I thought of his personal commitment reminded me of Job. In Job chapter 1, verse 1, where it says of him, he was a man who was blameless, the same word that's used here three times. He was blameless, upright, he feared God and shunned evil. So his commitment to his own integrity, and then we see his commitment to ruling well as king by both doing good and opposing evil, because you've got to do both. You've got to do both. So he was de determined to maintain purity in his kingdom by focusing first on his heart, and then on his home, his court, and then on the nation of his whole. And he was committed to combating evil and injustice and wickedness, first in his heart, and then in his home, and then in the nation as a whole. So yay, David. Can we say yay, David? Like yay, David? Okay. And can we say yay, God? Because God is the one who really this flowed from. So can we give God a yay, God? Yeah, yeah, God. Okay. May God, may his, uh, may his seed increase, right? His tribe increase, people like that. Okay, that's great, right? Um, when I came to this psalm, actually, I came to it for the thing I'm going to do right now. Realized as I dove into it that it was really a royal psalm. And I had planned this a couple months ago, not having a clue, knowing at the time that God would sovereignly place this two days before we celebrate our nation's government, you know, our own government and the thing that God's given us and to think about what's good government look like. But here's what I want to really go to, because the question is, what does that really have to do with me? I mean, I want that kind of ruler and I want to be that kind of leader, but what's that really have to do with me? And I want to show you what it has to do with us, because at the heart of this psalm, <clears throat> Verses 3 to 7, you can see the high level of importance David placed on the people that were around him, right, that were closest to him. He was very careful with who he allowed in his inner circle. 
David was on the lookout for like-minded, like-hearted, like-committed people to himself. That's what he wanted. People who pursued God and who wanted to live blameless lives before him and for his fame. That's the kind of people that he surrounded himself. That's the people that he wanted to bring near was those kind of people. I mean, if you look at verses 6 and 7, he was very careful who would dwell with him. He says that twice in those two verses. Who would minister to him and who would even stand in his presence. Because David knew in terms of relationship that the closer the proximity, the greater the influence. The, greater, the, greater, the closer the proximity, the greater the influence. So why was this so important to David? I think it's because he knew the power of friendship. The power of it to give life or to bring death. That I think he knew that friendship is like fire. That fire can bring warmth and light into my life. It can bring good things. But fire can also bring destruction, right? I think David is so committed to the people around him because he knew that if I surround my life with the right kind of people, they will bring life and light into my life. But if I surround myself with the wrong kind of people... Harm and ruin and destruction will come. And so he was committed to surrounding himself with the company of the faithful. And I think he did this because of experience. Because for 15 years, he was on the run. He had been anointed as king, but for 15 years, about that, he was on the run. And during that time, lost a lot of friends. But he had one guy that was a very faithful friend. And it was the son of Saul. And I think you know who it was, Jonathan. He had had this experience of a man, um, a friend, who lived sacrificially for him, and we're told in 1 Samuel 18, 1, that they, that they, they loved each other, that there was a soul knitting between them. They both pursued God together. They were such close friends, they even made a covenant together. They developed a covenant friendship. And I want you to know, Jonathan wielded major influence in David's life, major influence. So when he comes to his kingship, he knows that he has to be careful with his closest friends. So let's talk about us. Can we talk about us? Thank you. I'm going to talk about us, whether you want me to. First Samuel, I said, not first Samuel, first service. It's like, can I talk about us? Samuel says, you're going to anyways or something. So, because he loves me and we're, we're good friends. Okay. I want you to know your friendships are one of the most important overlooked dimensions of your life, of living a healthy life, and especially of having a healthy soul. Okay? Especially your spiritual life. Your friendships are the secret ingredient to a strong and enduring faith, secret ingredient. Here is the truth about friendships. By the way, that's Jonathan and David, and that a cool picture. Here's the truth about friendships. My friends will determine the direction and the quality of my life. My friends will determine the direction and quality of my life. That's why in Proverbs 13, 20, it says, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. And for that reason, according to Proverbs 20, 12, 26, a righteous man is cautious in friendship. You know, when it comes to any relationship, we must understand the principle of association. The principle of association, that you become like those that you're closest to. For good or for ill. That you become like those you're closest to. And in this vein, Proverbs 22, 24 to 25 says, do not make friends. With a hot-tempered man, do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, where he quotes, by the way, the Greek prophet Meander, where he says this, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. 
or as some of my <clears throat> kinfolk from Texas used to, sl- used to say, if you sleep with dogs, you wake up with fleas. If you sleep with dogs, you wake up with fleas. So hear me this morning. You will become the average of your five closest friends. That's humbling, isn't it? You'll become the average of your five closest friends. And your friends not only impact who you are now, they're also affecting who you will be. And so show me your friends and I will show you your future. Our future is not shaped primarily by our desires and ambitions. We all have desires of what I want to be. What really shapes my future is the company that I choose to keep. They're the ones that are going to shape my future. And God, of course, but the company is really important. There's a Moroccan proverb that says, choose your companions and you choose your road. And as Pat used to say to our children, she didn't create it, but she used to say to our children, the difference between who you are now and who you will be in five years from now are the people that you hang with, your friends, and the books that you read or the media you consume, I could say now. That what's going to create and really set the course of who you're going to be in five years are your closest friends and the things that you take into your mind and into your heart. And there's really good news to all that because there's actually a very concrete, actionable step that any of us can take that if you want to change your future, change your friends. And there may be somebody here this morning that you're on a path to a future that maybe even you can kind of see and you're like, that's not really where I want to be. And I just want to say that for somebody like that, you just may be one friend away from the best life that God actually wants to give you. One friend away. I want to get more concrete about friends for just a minute. Um, We all have three circles of friends, and each of these circles represents a kind of friend. Um, First is the inner core, your core. These are the one to three people you spend the most time with. These are the people Kylie was talking about in worship. They're, your, they're very close to you. They do life with you. You know each other very intimately, right? They're people that ultimately have, will have the greatest impact on you. These are the most important in their impact. They profoundly shape who you are and who you will become. And these are the people who are most going to forecast your future. Most forecast your future. So be very choosy with who's in your core. The second is the middle circle, and it's your community. And these are the, what, 12 to 15 people who are your good friends. They're the people you just enjoy hanging out with. Though they're an important part of your life, these friends moving in and out of this circle, kind of depending on common interests and, like, activities, time spent together. So this, these can shift a little bit. And though they're not as important as your core, they're still very important because they have major influence on you. Not like the core, but they still have major influence on you. And then finally is the outer circle, which is the circle of concern. And these are the people that you love and care for, um, people who you long for the best for them, and you're willing to sacrifice for them. People probably you encounter on a fairly regular basis. Um, They're friends you have relationship with, but probably not deep connection, right? I think we all know who some of those people are. This group tends to be very fluid. People move in and out of it quite a lot, not as set as the the inner two circles. And there is influence here. It's not near as strong as the core in the community. So here's my challenge to all of us today. 
to myself, to everybody here. I really encourage you to follow the example of David here. To fill your two inner circles with people who care about what you care about and who are pursuing God, that, you, that those are the kind of people you want there. I really challenge you to think about this, that your core friends, and this goes, by the way, with dating, <clears throat> because if you don't date somebody, you'll never marry them, right? If you date them, you might marry them. So it goes with dating. It goes with friends, okay? It goes with friends. Your core friends need to be people who are co- deeply committed to the things you're committed to and who share your deepest core values, okay? Forget, forget following God. This is true for everybody, okay? The people who are in your core need to be people who share your deep commitments and your deep core values. And if you claim Christ, I want to say everybody in your core needs to be somebody who is loving and pursuing Him. If He is a commitment of yours, those people need to be committed and chasing Him just like you are. Those people need to be in your core. That second circle, your community, again, very important. And it should be, I would say, filled primarily with people who share your commitments and your core values. That's just true across the board. It doesn't matter who you are. It should be primarily those people, not exclusively. So if you claim Christ, your, your community ought to be primarily people who are loving and pursuing Him, primarily, because they're going to influence you. And then that third circle, that circle of concern. If you follow Jesus, that's people in that circle, they need to be made up of a mix of people, Okay. I should have people in that area who love Jesus and who I know at that level, but I should have, there should be a lot of people in that one who don't know Jesus, and I'm trying to be the touch of God's love, and I want to be their friend, and I want to, I want to lean into them. Um, you should have non-Christian friends. If you follow Jesus, you should have non-Christian friends in that third circle. And if you don't, there's a problem. There's a problem. Because Jesus was known as a sin of friend, friendness. <laughs> That's the Greek. In English, he's a friend of sinners. Um, I don't think Matt would mind me telling this, but if, gosh, this was 15 years ago. I talked about who are the people we allow in our lives, and Matt told me after he became a believer that this, I only say this because it's true of all of us. It is so easy because your values change that before long, you don't know anybody anymore who doesn't know Jesus, and we don't want to be there, Okay. So I'm not trashing on Matt. He, Matt's just me and like all of us, right? We need to have those people in, in that circle of concern. So back to David, if you don't mind. Why was David so ruthless in whom he allowed his inner circle of friendships? Because he knew that second only to God, <clears throat> friends would shape the kind of person that he was and that he would become. David knew that. And so here's my advice to you today is choose your friends wisely. I really challenge everybody here, because I think we all need to do this occasionally, is to sit down and do a little bit of a, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of, an assessment of my friendship circles. Who are the people in the core for me? Who are the people that are walking with me, with Jesus, who encourage me, who pray for me, who hold me accountable, the people who, who God uses to be the ones that, that they, they helped so that I can be the kind of man or the person that I need to be, that I can become for a man, the father I need to be, the kind of parent that I need to be, the kind of leader that I need to be, um, to ask the question, who were in my core? And then ask the question, who are those people that are in my community? Still very significant. 
primarily people who follow Jesus, but not totally, right? But who are those people? And even the ones who don't follow Jesus, like what are their values and are they, they helping for me in a right way? But just do an assessment of that and then ask the question of the bigger circle. Who are the people in that? I think it's worth sitting down and thinking it through. It's something I've been doing this week. Because the truth is, is those people will have an impact not only on who you are, but who you will become. So it's worth the time to think about it. And I am sure that there are some of us here today who need to rethink and rearrange the friends in each of these circles. That if we thought about it, we would be like, there's some people I need to move out of the core or out of the community into this level. Or maybe there's somebody out here I need to move into the core that I know, I know about. Um, so am I just saying, hey, get rid of your mediocre friends and kick them all to the curb. Go home today and unfriend a bunch of people on Facebook. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Am I saying, as you do this assessment, you go to your friend and say, you used to be in my inner circle, but I'm moving you out circle two. Or you were in circle two, and I'm moving you three. Or you're kind of gone, like I'm... You're out of here. I mean, you don't do that. But as you think and reassess, if you realize that there's some people that don't need to be in one of those circles, that what you do is just quietly, you start to change who you give your heart to and who you give your time to. Does that make sense? You don't have to make a big announcement about it. But I think it's something we all should do because your friends matter. So I want to conclude by speaking to a few individual groups here this morning. Um... To the teenagers in our midst, I want to speak to you first. Uh, probably not excited to hear this, but listen to your parents. Not even kids, right? Listen to your parents. Usually, people get wiser as they get older. Usually. First service, I said that, and a little kid started laughing. <laughs> it was so funny. I said, okay, not that family, but usually that happens. And trust me, your parents love and care for you, and they can see things you can't see right? We all have blind spots. They know things about you. They know your darkness and your dark tendencies. They know, they know where God might be moving you. They can see how your creational design. They can see your friends in ways that you can't because you tend to become blind to people. When you, when you bring them into that level, you don't see things. And so if your friends say something about your friends, take, take them seriously, okay? Listen, that's my first challenge. Um, second challenge, I'm sure there are some seniors in here there was one, I think, first service. I'm just looking. There's some seniors in here. Claire's a senior. Anybody else? Jordy, you're a senior? Yeah, awesome. Um, but I know your brother is. So you can tell this to him for me, okay? If you're a senior, you're going off to college, one of the most formative times in your life. Um, Claire, I would, yeah, Olivia, here's another one. Oh, she thought she was getting away with it. I'm not just going to stare you guys down, okay? That'd be really uncomfortable. But you're going off to a time that's going to be so transformative of your life. You're going to make decisions, set up behaviors and habits that will affect your whole future. I mean, you know that. Choose your friends wisely, your community there. That will have repercussions throughout your whole life. So your core and your community, make sure you're wise in who those people are, okay? All right? Jordy, will you pass that on for me? Okay. Really important. And then finally, to all of us adults, this is not beyond us, right? We all have friends. So think about who are those people. Think about who are those people. And then I just want to wrap up by speaking to the guys for a minute. And I think the guys probably knew it was coming, right? Oh, Garen always talks about the guys because I am a guy and I understand. It used to be 20 years ago that by, they would say by the time a guy hit 50, he no longer had a core group of people that he really gave his life to, like really invested in, was intimate with and would, would walk with the Lord deeply with in a profound way. 
But that has shifted. Recent research shows that a lot of guys, by the time they hit 30, they no longer have a core circle in their life. It's gone. What their life becomes about is you go to work, you go home and do family, you recreate. It's, it's work, family, recreate. And you lose the connection with some guys who help you walk with Jesus that you can really open up your heart, that they can pray for you, they can encourage you, they can challenge you. And I'm sure there are some guys here today who were like, my core is empty. There may be even some women here. My core is empty. I don't have it. And I really want to challenge you. David knew it. You need it. You need Jonathans in your life. You need some people who can walk with you, who can call you to truth, help keep you accountable to Jesus. So for the guys, just for all of us, I really want to challenge us to that. Um, a few years ago, I said, this is like one of the, the first sermon series I did, that on the journey of faith, like any journey, we need three things. We need a map. Okay, on our spiritual journey, we need a map. We need companions. And we need a guide. I need somebody who's further along with me that can help mentor me and point the way in the spiritual life, point me to this and that, right? But we've got to have companions. I need my fellowship of the ring, right? I need that. I need my band of brothers. That's why Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So guys, if you don't have a core, anybody, if you don't have a core, you left college and you kind of lost it. Um, I really challenge you this summer, you've got a few weeks left to really start thinking about who are some guys, some gals, some people that I can invite into my core, start meeting with, that we can be really working to grow, pointing each other to Jesus, run together towards him. So that's just a final challenge I want to leave you with. But 12th, may we be, be a people. Because, you know, we're concerned about our nation. We want to lead well, right? And I can vote and I can pray, which should be the most important thing we do. But I can't do a whole lot about what's going on in D.C. or Topeka, even what's going on in the city level, right? But here's what I can take from David today. The thing I can do is I can press into my friends and have the right kind of friends who will shape my life and have the commitment to friendship that he had. And so may we, 12th, may we be a community of people. That it, Can you imagine if all of us were walking with a core of a few people who helped us follow Jesus well? And then we had a community of people primarily like that who helped shape us. And then we were living in this, this circle of concern, people we loved and cared for, including people who don't know Jesus, that we just want to love them well. I mean, can you imagine what kind of place this would be? So that's my call. Can we be that kind of place? So let me pray. Father, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for... Um, the kind of man that David was for his desire to lead with integrity. Lord, give us these kinds of leaders at all levels, please. We long for that. We just pray for our nation that you would give us these kind of men and women. And Lord, I just pray for us as a community that we would be people who would understand how profound and important friendships are and that we would really lean into it in a healthy way, that we would all have a core of people who are around us who point us to you that we would all in, our, in that community level, that those people, primarily, again, people who love you, who share our core commitments, our core values, and then, Lord, that circle of concern, that we'd have some people who follow you in that, but we have some people that we just want to love and be the practical touch of your love and point them to you and the shalom that you bring. So make us that kind of a church and that kind of a body. Make me that way. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, who lived with all three of those, who had a core of three but a community of 12 who had a circle of 70 and even more than that of people that were of concern. So we just want to be like him. And we pray in his name. Amen. All right, 12th, you are sent to live like David in your world.
go get some good friends, okay? Bring them in. And holiday. Yeah, thank you, Rob. We got it. Have a great holiday.